This is the official podcast of heyyouguys.co.uk. My name is John Lias, and joining me again this week, we have two fine fellas in the shape of Craig Skinner and Brendan Connolly. Now, as you'll have noticed from the change in theme music, um, this was meant to go out uh, last Thursday uh, on the um, election night here in the UK. That didn't happen, um, so we're doing it tonight. But luckily, about, ooh, I'd say about 18 minutes ago, David Cameron was uh, announced as the new Prime Minister for the UK, God help us. So we are going to be um, keeping with the with the election government theme and uh, as a special rip from the crypt section at the end of the podcast, we're going to be talking over our favourite uh, government politics film. So look out for that. And I was just thinking, they've um, they brought everything else back from the 80s, so why not Thatcherism? Uh, I'm sure that's due for a, for a resurrection sooner or later. So um, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today, as well as Prince of Persia, which is the, probably the biggest film that's coming out over the next couple of weeks. And uh, um, and then we're going to be moving on to a couple of bits of film news. And then, like I said, we're going to have the election themed ripped from the crypt. Now, it's been a bit of a crazy weekend um, this past weekend for Hey You Guys. And um, this is just kind of a public thank you to everyone who has supported us, who has advised us um, over the last sort of 72 hours. Um, it's been a real testament to the collegiate nature of the movie blogging community um that we've um that we've been helped so much so i do appreciate that thank you very much everyone so let's get into it then brendan you're the only person uh here who has seen prince of persia the mike newell film now before we go into what you thought about it um craig what do you know about prince of persia the sands of time um i played the game um i've seen the posters and the trailers um, I've heard about a couple of people who've seen it and I don't like the sound of it to be honest it doesn't really appeal to me at all <laughs> not in the slightest I mean it, to me it seems like it's um, a fairly standard CG infused action romp um, with you know stupid special effects um, uh, Craig are you, uh, are you a gamer like, say it again it, Craig it really looks dumb to be honest <laughs> I think it just looks stupid uh, yeah it's a CG nonsense really um, I don't think it's in 3D, although, Brendan, you can confirm or deny that, but it seems to me like it's a, another Clash of the Titans in the sense that it's it's all you know, on screen in the special effects. There's nothing much to it. But um, I'm, I, I kind of used to be a gamer, and I, I remember the original Prince of Persia way back when, which kind of dates me, but I haven't played any, any of the new ones. So, um, Craig, do you, would you say that, this has, um, that the game has kind of potential to become a movie, or would they have to, do they have their work cut out? Um, I probably haven't played enough of the game to get into the plot line um, to say whether it had too much potential. But, I mean, it's just a premise. If they just take the premise, then, yeah, it's, it's got potential. But um, it's what they do with that premise. And, I don't know, it doesn't look like they've done anything too exciting with it. I mean, okay. I'm, I'm the same. I used to play the, the original game. Um, and then, you know, they fleshed it out a bit more when they brought out the new game. But... Yeah, I mean, uh, you could go interesting angles with any premise, I think, but it's it's whether they've done that, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, this is the, you know, the latest in a long, long line of kind of video video game adaptations, and I think everyone's waiting for the one which proves that they can actually work. But Brendan, tell us all about Prince of Persia. Does it succeed on any level? 
uh, there's one way it succeeds, and that it's better than Clash of the Titans. But that's, I mean, you know, that wasn't really a question anyone was was asking of it. What I really want now is a film that's better than Clash of the Titans. No, it's <laughs> not. You know, no, it's like walking into a restaurant and asking for a turn on a plate. You just don't do those things. Um, I think that it's a it's a really incredibly mediocre film, um, and I think the one way in which it is subpar is in its action. That's quite surprising, considering well, considering what we know of it in terms of the trailers and in terms of like Craig said, you know, the the premise. Surely the action should be, you know, front and centre. Really, you would think so, wouldn't you? And if you go back to the original Prince of Persia game, and it was this sort of uh, side, sort of side presented, running and jumping precision platformer. The appeal there was the sort of agility and, and nimble nature of the of the lead character, and it's no surprise that they've sort of ended up with a film that's somewhat infused by parkour and and the sort of free running sort of um, action stylings. But the problem is they've not cast anyone who can do it, not even really in the stunt team. So the whole thing's chopped to ribbons. You never see anyone make one continuous motion across a car. Compared to something like, I don't know, District 13 or, or, or the first 15 minutes of Casino Royale, where, you know, irrespective of how they're filmed and edited, you're clearly watching people who've got the agility to pull these things off. And then even more so, say, I don't know, to chase through the market in Ong Bak or uh, Jet Li making his way across the post in Iron Monkey or whatever, where what you're actually seeing is... is Physical ability, skills, right? Buster Keaton on the front of the train in the general mm. tossing the, 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 the planks. This is what draws us to those films. That's what hooks us on them. And it's what Prince of Persia, would you would think, would be built around. But actually, it is to parkour uh, action movies what Chicago is to musicals. And I mean by that, you don't get to see anybody properly dance. And they're trying to hide the fact that everybody is, is quite a bad dancer through the way that the, the camera and the editing works. Amazingly, you barely get a shot that actually shows us the whole of anybody's body in the whole film. There's almost no long shots in there at all. Majority mid-shot close-ups. And then if you think back to that first Prince of Persia when it's actually all about seeing the fullness of him and the environment he's in and him bouncing around that space, mm. just crying out for some long shots. And is that the fault of Mike Newell then, would you say, in terms of the way that he shot it? Because I'm, I'm looking back at his you know, filmography and I'm seeing things like Harry Potter and you know, the, you know very CG-heavy films. Um, well, only lately. Exactly, no, but like beforehand, of course, you know, there's... Um, you know, even back as far as you know, four weddings and, and things. You know, the sort of the really eclectic mix of of what he's done. But is is do you think that that's his fault in just not understanding the sort of the methodology of shooting such an action heavy film? Well, what's going on here? Why is Mike Nichol, uh, Mike Mike Nichols, Mike Newell rather? Why has Mike Newell made this film? Uh, Mike Newell has made this film because let's be honest, the shark got a taste of blood. I don't know how much they paid him for Harry Potter. But I think it's flat out. I think it's flat out studio fair from here on out. Definitely, while the films continue succeeding, and and one box office comes in off these films, I don't think he's going to say no to these gigs. He can keep a film on time, but you know, there's very little, uh, very little discipline in what he's what he's doing there. It's quite perfunctory storytelling. And that you, as well, Brent. Um, some of the faults of the way he shot the action are something to do with the way Hollywood shoots action generally. I mean. I remember seeing an inter- uh, I think hearing or seeing an interview with Jackie Chan a while ago where he said that one of the things I can't remember exactly what he said, but that one of the things that annoyed him when he went to the America was that they wanted to shoot him in close up and they wanted to keep cutting, 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 
and they didn't understand that you needed to see what he was doing, and that was yeah. half, the, half the genius. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the difference between a lot of films Jackie Chan's directed himself and some other directors have made in China, though, to be honest. If you look at some of Benny Chan's films, they're pretty badly put together. Mm. Um, I, I'd say uh, there is a tendency towards that in Hollywood, but there are similarly a great uh, a number of very good action directors in Hollywood. I think, I think I've seen some very strong action sequences. And would you say that that's in a studio picture like this, or is that in something maybe a bit more independent? Depends what you mean. I mean, think back to something like Blade Two, which which was pretty much the cutting edge of of American action at that time. Uh, do we call that a studio picture? I mean, it was New Line, I guess so. Um, uh, so you know, that's the way in which in which the film really falls below par. But it is pretty flatly mediocre in every other way. There were a couple of little things of interest, though. I don't know if they're of quality, but they're of interest. There's a, a sort of a fairly cliched moment at the end where our heroine is hanging in a sort of a, a, a chasm, a, a, a crevice of some kind, and, and she's going to let go and fall. And as she's slipping, the noises Gemma Arterton Arten makes are of genuine fear, and it just highlights how the, the cliched portrayal of this scene doesn't go to that place. The person just goes like, no! But she actually makes these weird, frightening, whimpering, gasping noises, like someone who's just about to die. And it's very, very strange and sincere bit of performance from her. And I was impressed that, that she did that and that she was allowed to do that and that that made the cut. And What's also... Go on, bro. Yeah, sorry. I was, was going to say, unless, of course, there was actually some sort of problem on set and she was about to die and they just managed to save her at the end. Well, you never know, do you? I mean, the, the, the lighting fixture may have fallen down light and they may have cut just two frames before it sort of like landed on her and burnt her arm. I don't know. <laughs> Unlikely. Yeah. That's something we would have read about in the tabloids. Um, I don't there, think... There isn't that... enough of that in films these days. Where's Peckinpah riding around on a little car shooting a shotgun to scare people? <laughs> yes, we, well, need, we need more of that. <laughs> more of that. We told Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, we've got his kids and... Uh, <laughs> I love it. That's okay. That makes me wouldn't it? He'd yeah. do some action then. Yeah. I don't think he's got kids, by the way. So <laughs> <laughs> he's confused and frightened. But um, uh, the other thing of interest is it doesn't take long for this, shall we say, action adventure story in the desert to start echoing certain recent world events. And there are some weapon uh, deposits that may or may not exist. And, and and the first mission may be to hunt down these these deadly weapons that that, that the enemy may have. But of course, this may all be uh, a political charade that somebody has created to give them more power. So that has absolutely nothing to say about the whole WMD scenario. It pays lip service to it in a way that is very fashionable in recent Hollywood films. But with nothing, with no substance at all to back it up, which is a bit of a shame. Conclude anything? Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, maybe it's a vague whiff that distrust of politicians, you know. But I mean, I mean, it undermines all of that by by your sort of ultimate villain being blindingly obvious from the minute you see the poster. Well, this is it, and I was talking to Dave, who uh, I've obviously seen it. He's done like interviews with people, but um, apparently the the villain is. is I, I was about to out the villain in a post that I was doing on the on the site, and he was saying that they're very keen that it's not you know revealed because it's you know. But to me, it was obvious. I, I I think I knew it without even hearing about it. So it sounds like there's not much of a surprise. But tell, talk to us a little bit about the casting because you talked about Gemma Arterton's whimpering. What about Alfred Molina and Ben Kingsley and and, and Jake himself? Melina doesn't seem to have the courage of his own convictions here. In in an early scene, he appears to be impersonating Captain Jack Sparrow. 
uh, and then that, then that goes away, which is disappointing. There is something of a sort of like Russell Brand's dad sort of thing to Melina's performance in places. I mean, I think you'll know what I'm saying when you look at this little particular grin he does. Um, and it's like, you know, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? I'm not going to tell you. Because, uh, um, you know, they, they don't want these surprises spoiled. But is Ben Kingsley going to be a villain in this film? Or, or, or is he for once going to be a good guy? For once. For once, you know, exactly, yeah. I, I've forgotten that little film we made back in 1982. Um, is he ever going to be a, a peaceful man? <laughs> Um, uh, probably not, no. Okay, but what, no. Uh, Chances are, there's a villain in one of those two. Yeah, you could be right. And, um, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure how this film is going to go go down. Disney done an awful lot to, um, you know, to push it, and I think that the word hasn't been incredibly toxic. I think some people said, you know, it's it's that hideous old thing. Is if you turn your brain off, then you'll enjoy it. But uh, you know, as I always say, if you turn your brain off, you'll be dead. So that's not a fit state <laughs> to be in a cinema. You can <laughs> turn your brain off. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Please, you're quite you right. just sign yourself over to science. We need to know how this works. We won't learn something. Exactly. You backwards engineer it and work out how we can turn some people's brains on. <laughs> Excellent. You can see there's a political subtext to everything we say tonight as well, so I'm, uh, I'm enjoying that very much. Um, okay, uh, final words on it then, Brendan. Before we move on, should people see it? Do you think they'd enjoy it? What do you think? If you see about 24 films a year, then I'd imagine this is probably likely to... I mean, at the cinema... Mm. This is likely to be somewhere in the sort of lower echelons of what you're likely to see, but I wouldn't I wouldn't prioritise it. And you know, it, that depends on whether you live in a town where it's just a multiplex and you've got cinema that shows real films as well. But it, it's definitely not a priority. It's just mediocrity, and it's just it it doesn't succeed. It doesn't succeed, and and and, and to me that's offensive. To the majority of people, it probably isn't. Okay. Um... Before we move on, Craig, uh, has Brendan in any way changed your views? Um, no. Um, I think what I said seems to mirror what Brendan's saying. I mean, it, it doesn't sound particularly exciting. It sounds quite dumb. I don't know if I'm being okay. unfair. But, um, yeah, mediocre is kind of what I imagined it to be, and it sounds like it is. So I probably will be avoiding it, or certainly not seeking it out. Okay, but guys, tell me this. I mean, you've got... Um, there's probably a very obvious answer to this, but you've got um, Clash of the Titans, which did appallingly because it was terrible. You've got this one, which is, you know, in, in your words, Brendan, it's, it's, it's the, you know, the height of mediocrity. But let's look at the other films that are, that are sort of, you know, coming. We're talking about Alice in Wonderland. We're talking about um, what other films have come up that have, that have just been okay. You know, they haven't really... Well, Alice is a film. significantly better film than Prince of Persia. Well, that's what I was trying to work out. You know, we've, yeah, there, there seems I to mean, be a lot more in Alice. I mean, if Alice rocks in at about a 6 out of 10, mm-hmm. then this comes in at about a 3. And Clash is in minus figures. Like, it's probably pretty close to zero, John, to be fair. Well, I mean, it really I mean, was I mean, a terrible bit of filmmaking. It really was. So two of those films you named are the are Disney live-action films. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's where I was going uh, with it. Well, my memory's a bit hazy, but... What you know, I remember seeing Disney live action films when I was a kid, but I don't really find any of them think of any of them as being memorable. Their animated features are incredibly memorable. I know, <laughs> Brendan, you're quite into Disney, so you could probably pick me up and correct <laughs> Which, me. Here, so you I, can't, them. Um, <laughs> I uh, can't I, think the original uh, Parent Trap, um, Freaky Friday, Barbara Harris, my beloved Barbara Harris, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they're pretty solid films. Mary Poppins is brilliant. Oh, yeah, I suppose Mary yeah, Poppins. Yeah. yeah. You see, it, it, it doesn't seem like, considering we've had two in the past few months, 
I, it, are they going to be memorable? Do they need to be memorable, it's, or are they just... It's only, it's only since the late 70s that they've really been cranking them out. Um, you know, I mean, some people make an argument for Tron. It's in my collection because it's such an aesthetically pure film. Mm. But is it a good film? Not really. In fact, it's actually quite a bad film. Oh, I don't know. Well, I watched it again the other day. I, yeah, I totally forgot about John. So yeah, I was but wrong. But, it, but I tell you what, it's, it, it's not a classic in in in, in the same way. That, I mean, you, you you look at this year, you look at what Disney's going to be putting out, and in terms of their live action stakes, you've got these films, and you also got um, uh, you know, the second Tron film, Tron Legacy, which is coming out at the end of the year. But then you look at something like Princess and the Frog, which was the latter end of um, you know, of last year. Well, it was early this year for us. Was it early this year? Because I saw yeah. it in, in November time. So okay, yeah, in that case, it was you know within the same year. You look at something like Princess and the Frog and the success of that film. I don't think that even Tron Legacy, with all of its marvellous special effects and 3D nature, that's not going to come you know, up to the standards of Princess and the Frog. They'd be very lucky if it did. Oh, well, it just isn't. It just isn't. It's not being made by filmmakers of that degree of, of, of skill. Mm. It just isn't. Um, and, and similarly, we've got, we've got Toy Story 3 this summer, and like it or lump it, that's a Disney film now. Yeah. Um, and uh, I doubt... I doubt any of their live-action films are going to assail the heights of their of their uh, animated ones, but that that's because the caliber of people they've got working on animation is actually incredibly high, and the caliber of pe- caliber of people they got working on uh, live-action is kind of shrug offable. And with the exception of you know the occasional um, star director who comes their way, it's going to continue to be like that. I mean, this was supposed to be a big year for Disney and their live action. It was supposed to sort of make up for the relatively poor showing of, of recent years. But um, if mediocrity is what they can come up with, then it'll just get lost again and they won't be remembered because this won't, this won't be the year that we remember Disney's live action, it seems. It'll be the you know the year of Toy Story 3. It'll be the year of Princess and the Frog. So, um, OK, well, the Prince of Persia, I believe, is out on the 21st of May in the UK. Um, we've got a lot of stuff going up on the site, a lot of interviews. Um, Dave was at the, um, at the premiere, uh, which was crazy. They had a lot of the parkour stuff going on, a lot of, you know, weird, um, you know, dancing and martial arts demonstrations. It seemed like a pretty good time. And so they've got the phone number of people who can do this stuff. They just didn't actually use it when they were making the film. Did Dave get to touch Jerry? Oh, well, I was just about to mention, he, he, he unfortunately couldn't make it on the podcast, but he's hopefully going to be on next week to talk about Robin Hood a little bit, but he texted me, um, uh, and I can only imagine his hand was shaking because he said, guess whose hand I've just touched. Now, he got to ask um, Joe Brookheimer a question in the um, in the Prince of Persia press conference, and it was, I, I, I forget what the question was, but it was basically, why are you so great? And, you know, when can we see more of your great films? Which is, um, you know, which is just lovely. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, why, I'm, do, you, do you know why Dave likes Joe Brookheimer so much? That's a question for him. All I know is that when we first started Hey You Guys, he... Uh, we used to Skype a lot, and he would be sitting in front of his Jerry Bruckheimer super shelf, and I believe that actually got a mention on the very first podcast. So um, he has a shelf where all of Jerry's films are. He's got a signed photo of uh, of Jerry. But this week, um, I think it was a Sunday, he actually got a chance to um, to shake the hand of uh, of Jezza B, and um, you can see all of that um, on the uh, on our, on our website. You can use, like exclusive interviews with him. And, you can see it's a genuine moment for for Dave. You know what I mean. This is one of the big, you know, moments of um, of his life. I swear. I tell so, you, it's never going to get better than this for him. Well, at the Transformers Two premiere, <laughs> premiere last year, um, just as we were, you know, walking out uh, on our way to the toilets to throw up, we saw Michael Bay in the um, in the foyer, and Dave said, "I've I've got to do it." And he of course walked over, shook his hand, and said, 
I think your films are great. And then came away beaming that big Dave smile that the that we know and love. So he's clearly up for the you know. For See, if I if I met Michael Bay and Jerry Bruckheimer, I would have slightly different things to say. I'd be I think I wouldn't. But I'd be polite, but um, yeah. I love your films is not what would first come no, to no, I asked a very sincere question at the Transformers 2 press conference. Oh, yeah. Um, and it sort of got, a, got an incredibly thoughtless answer from, from, from Bay and his cohort. I think what, what's interesting, people should know, though, why I think it doesn't get any better for Dave. Let's talk about Dave a little bit here, right? Because he's not here and it's a perfect opportunity. And I know he listens to this in the car. So if either of you got anything particularly good to say about Dave, I, I think it's now our opportunity. But he's got a shelf of Jerry Brookheimer films. That's like a magic Jerry Brookheimer shelf in his bedroom. Yeah, that's it. The super shelf. The super shelf. I mean, he really is very, very special to him, isn't he? He is, absolutely. And, and the thing is with Dave, I mean, we've obviously talked about this quite a lot. Dave, Dave and I, um, you know, we met and we, we talked a lot about 80s films, hence how you guys turning, you know, turning into what it did and, in the early days. But he has a genuine love for, for for his films and even though he you know he loves some really terrible stuff he loves them and i can't fault him for that do you know what i mean no he really loves them and i think it's i think it's brilliant it's, I think yeah it's i mean any any sort of film uh love is a great thing you know even if even if it's for something that you know personally you don't like but, <laughs> you know if you love something that's the passion is brilliant i i would never fault someone who's passionate about something. Exactly, and I think one of the things that that, that we you know found initially um, about being online and, and about taking the step to putting your views out in, in into the into the public is that um, you, you know there, there can be some very you know snooty people who will you know have a go at you for not seeing um, a film, and it won't be a case of oh you haven't seen that you must see it, um, which which is one of the greatest gifts that that you can give to someone on, on the internet is say like introduce them to a new director that they, that they might end up loving. Do you know what I mean? It's basically, you can't be a film critic if you haven't seen this, you know, this particular film. So, um, I think there needs to be more of that, you know, more, more sort of celebration of things that you love and, you know, say, well done, Dave. Well done. You. See, see Rip from the crypt. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's what we're trying to do here. But okay. Um, we should do a, we should do a Jerry Brookheimer special for Rip from the crypt. Did he ever make any short films, anything like that? Anything that people might not have seen? Well, um, I don't think so, but um, maybe we will do. Maybe we'll do a Jerry Brookheimer. What on earth would I I recommend? Actually, I don't know why I said that. I can't think of a single Jerry Brookheimer. You and I were both there. It would have to be a podcast where Dave is just doing it by himself, I think. Then he could just recommend the whole lot, I think. Okay, so that's the that's the end of our Prince of Persia discussion and uh, and Disney live action, um, and of course our discussion of Dave, who's great. Um, we're going to use this as a very nice segue to talk about the first bit of film news that was announced uh, recently, um, and we wrote it up on the site. Brad Bird, uh, Pixar's own, has been confirmed as the um, director of Mission Impossible Four. J.J. Abrams um, and Tom Cruise basically set up Mission Impossible 4 relatively recently, but there was a few names that were thrown into the hat for who was going to be, um, the, you know, actually taking on the directing reins. I think we had uh, Edgar Wright was in there, and this, is, of course, is a totally unofficial list. It was just, you know, names that, that, that were banded around. It could have, might as well have been a wish list, but there was Edgar Wright, I believe, uh, Ruben Fleischer as well, and Brad Bird. And to me, when I actually wrote up the rooms, I was thinking Brad Bird could be, you know, really, really special. Um, he was then confirmed for... Um, for Mission Impossible 4 and I think there was a genuinely a pretty good reaction to this but let me ask let me ask you two what you thought of this um, what you thought of this news and do you think he, he's going to make a good Mission Impossible film Craig what do you think um, I didn't know what to think when I first heard the news I mean um, although 
I like what Brad Bird's done. I don't know. I don't know what a live action film by him would be like. I mean, we can obviously tell a lot that he's talented and that he knows what he's doing in the realm of film, but not necessarily live action. Um, I mean, at this point in the uh, Mission Impossible franchise, though, I, I, anyone would be interesting to me. Um, I, they totally lost me with it. I, I enjoyed the first one. The second one lost me about 10 minutes into it, and I didn't even watch the third one, which is, I know, quite bad, and I probably should, but it just didn't interest me anymore. So it, I'll probably watch, well, I'll almost certainly watch the fourth one. So, I mean, I'd say it has to be good news then, because it's got me back into watching them. Can I ask why you didn't see the, uh, the third? Was it simply because you just weren't interested in what they were doing, or was it because of the director involved, or what was it about that it didn't make you, you know? Um, crazy Tom doesn't help. Um, I kind of pretty much avoid anything with Tom Cruise in these days. Not that I ever really watched anything with Tom Cruise in. Mm. Um, I just can't stand him, really. And uh, I don't know. The the first one, yeah, was really good, but the second one, it, I, I, yeah, just it was, painful. It was, it was pretty poor. It was pretty poor. But I actually, I actually enjoyed the the third Mission Impossible film for many reasons. And I think you do have to switch off the fact that it is. Um, you know that it is Tom Cruise in there, but of course he's going to be back um, for the for the fourth one. And he and J.J. Abrams, I think, had such a good time on Mission Impossible Three that I, I think they're going to be quite a um, almost like a bit of a weight on on Brad Bird's back. I'm just hoping that that he's got the you know the the vision and the ability to sort of stave off and and create his own film. Brendan, what, what's your take on this on this bit of news? I wouldn't worry about Bird. I tell you, he's a he's a strong man. Actually, he's a very uh, very clear minded, and he knows what works and what doesn't. Um, and and I think he's got the entire skill set. Actually, I, I do think he has. What worries me most of all, most of all about it is we know who's writing the thing, and every film Brad Bird's made before has at least been co-written by uh, by Mr. Bird, and a lot of great television has been co-written by Mr. Bird as well. Not that you necessarily remember it, but. Um, uh, I would at least like to see him, you know, steer the script, be, be on board, board through, the, through the writing process. And it does seem to be that he's come on board before there is a finished script. So that, that augurs well. Um, I talked about the first one a couple of weeks ago, and I do think it's a, an uneven film, but, but at its best, it's as good as film can be. I think the second one is... Uh, pretty weak by Mr. the full standard of John Woo's career but it definitely has some some high points but it's trying to be an entirely different sort of film to the first one and indeed the the, the, the most things it's 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 a ridiculously ostentatious piece i think the third one was was kind of polished tedium really um i thought it was quite interesting to see Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Tom Cruise as Philip Seymour Hoffman, if you know what I mean. He had to pretend he was Tom Cruise in a in a disguise. And that was good, because his impersonation of Cruise was just a little bit too loud and a little bit too big, and I had a lot of fun with that. I wish they could have done that for like half of the film. In the way that, you know, the way that um, Cage and Travolta got to sort of play each other in, in, in Face Off, more of that would have been good. But I'm hopeful. I think Brad Bird's um, very sensitive to the to the right things, for a film of this genre. So I think it's probably, probably going to be a pretty good movie. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think anything, um, with, with Brad Bird's name on it is going to be certainly, you know, really interesting. I Do you know why he signed on? Why is that? I'm pretty sure it's because he's had difficulty getting 1906 off the ground. 
and this is his long cherished project about the San Francisco earthquake. Mm. It's a live action film, and he's had a lot of difficulty getting backing because he's never made a live action film before. And I think he's thinking, right, okay, I'm going to take one of these offers for a live action film. But Mission Impossible Four, I mean, that's going to be fairly action heavy. Um, one would assume. Do you think that that? Do you, do you think he, he chose Mission Impossible Four um, for any reason other than it's a live action and it's sort of a you know? It's obviously he's he's working with JJ and, and, and because it's made ninety percent in the storyboarding process. Fine. Okay. No, that, that's actually a really good take on it. Well. Um, Obviously, we haven't, you know, heard much more about the about the film. But you've got people like Andrew Stanton making John Carter of Mars at the moment. You know, making the the move um, from animation to to live action. And as we were talking about with with Disney's, um, you know, output for this year, um, it's not always an, a, an easy and, and an obvious uh, move. But if you've got the talent, and I, of course, Brad Bird has got a talent. You know, that's um, almost undeniable. But it'll be really interesting to see. Um, you know what, what he'll do with it so uh, more news on that as we get it so okay thank you for that guys um, next bit of news that we've got was um, actually revealed very late last night um, when Jonathan Ross who is a sort of television personality chat show uh, host here in the UK who, who's also married to Jane Goldman who wrote uh, Stardust and also Kick-Ass um, uh, this follows on from the news that Matthew Vaughan is going to be doing um, X Men First Class, and there was a hint of a, a hint of Jane Goldman's involvement in this film um, when Jonathan Ross again tweeted um, that uh, Jane Goldman, his wife, was um, was going to be taken up with a with a very you know big film for the next couple of weeks, and then of course he tweeted last night that it was X Men Four as he called it, and then he uh, confirmed that it was actually X Men First Class. So she and Vaughn uh, are reteaming for for the next film, the reboot, if you like, of of the X Men franchise. Now, um, I guess you know the the initial impression is that that's a, that's that's a good thing. They work really really well together, Vaughn and Goldman. Stardust, I really really enjoyed. Uh, I thought, I mean, obviously, it was you know heavily influenced, um, or it was it was rather it, it was good because it was um, you know the original source material was you know pretty fantastic. The Neil Gaiman story, but um, with Kickass as well. It just shows that they can take something um, which is, you know, relatively um, uh, ordinary, I think, and then make it something special on screen. I think that, that you know, that's um, that was one of its successes over the comic book of Kick-Ass. So, guys, what do you think about Jane Goldman writing and Matthew Vaughan directing X-Men First Class? Brendan, what's your take on it? I like her. I think she's good. Um, uh, interesting to hear that that they collaborate in such a way that he's very much the man behind the structure of the scripts and she's very much the the texture i think she said something like he's he's the architect and she's the interior decorator that was very illuminating to to find that out so i hope that um i hope that the architecture they've inherited which comes from uh brian singer and and a, and a previous uh previous draft is is up to shape um i would imagine it probably is because i think singer's superhero films are tremendous um I think she's. I think she's good. I'm, why are people calling it a reboot? That's a very popular term at the moment. A few years back, when when all that Star Wars nonsense was going on, everybody was dropping to a prequel left, right, and centre. Mm. I think this is intended to be a prequel. It's intended to very much be part of that same series and to shade in that actual particular X verse, to coin a phrase that we've mm. seen in the Singer films. I think the reason yeah, that not, I was going quick. 
Sorry, I was going to pick up on the reboot thing as well. Yeah, I, uh, my understanding was that it wasn't really a reboot. I mean, let it me, sounds... Okay, in, in that case, let me, let me clarify. I think I, I, I think I've read the word reboot on, on one of the reports, and actually, uh, from what I understand of it, it's just going back to the to the earlier um, incarnations of of the of the X Men. I think yeah. so. I'm, I'm curious to see if we know some of the casting already, because if you look at the end of the Wolverine movie, we see young versions of some of the mutants, some of the ones that we know to be in this film. And I'd be very surprised if Laura Shuladonna and Tom Rothman hadn't effectively cherry-picked the kids that they were looking for for this film. Okay, that's interesting. It's, it's a really weird link-up between those films, though, because Wolverine doesn't... Although Wolverine is in the same world as X-Men 1 to 3... There's loads of bits that don't fit, and obviously they kind of redo scenes from the original X-Men films and kind of change them. So it's kind of weird. Say again? Where? I mean, only only Uh, in the... the, I mean, the stuff that goes on in Alkali Lake is only sort of staged differently. It's supposed to be the same events happening. Ah. It is quite different, though, the way... I mean, mean, the mere fact that they use different footage seems... Weird, like they refilmed all of it. Sure, you would have. I mean, I don't. I don't. I'm not suggesting that the the two have different worlds that they exist in, but I don't know. I'm not sure how much care has been taken in them all linking up at the moment. Or, or one might argue that the directors were allowed their own visual interpretation. And mm, another yeah. another defence would be that um, the way we see it in singers' films is, is purely memory. But I'm not here to make excuses for Lauren Donna. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah, I, I, I think I Wolverine think was just a bit lazy. You think? Sorry, Craig, said again. I think Wolverine was just a bit lazy, or or that they didn't really care that much. Perhaps I don't know. I didn't I might enjoy be being... the film. Oh. I, I I have to say that I'm, you know obviously like I think most people X Men and X Two uh, I enjoyed very very much. Didn't care much for the Last Stand. Wolverine was was yeah whatever. Um, I was more interested in. The, you know potential of a of a Magneto film, um, which I guess is off the cards now because you've got you know X Men First Class being the next the next iteration of. Um, uh, in a sense, it is a Magneto film. Well, that was it. Yeah, I was going to say central to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, maybe we, there's some parts of I don't know how far they got in terms of scripting that, or if there was any ideas just being kicked around. But um, the very fact that you've got Matthew Vaughan and, and Jane Goldman on the thing is, is you know really really good with Kickass. Um, doing you know very well here and doing pretty well in the states as well i think that's it's a really good next move for them but um brendan there was a rumor i think um i think you posted something relatively recently about a kick-ass um writer of of the comic book mark miller being involved in in an x-men 4 script is that right according to mr miller yeah he's um he's wonderful discussing every conversation he ever has with anyone about anything ever um one of the whistles he blew claimed that he had been having talks at fox for uh an x-men film of some description um and it now would seem likely that it was this one okay i mean it's strange that you've got those that you know those trio of uh, people who are you know obviously worked very very hard on on, on kick-ass and potentially uh, a sequel to kick-ass no matter you know I've, I've got no idea where you know the announcement you know, X Men First Class leaves that sequel, but um, it seems really interesting that that Brian Singer and his team were keen to get these these people on board. Um, if it wasn't for Kickass, then I assume that they that they might not have been even in in the 
you know, well, Matthew, Matthew Vaughan was attached to DirectX three for quite some time, but that yeah, and, and look how that turned out. That, that that's one you know interested in. Sort yeah, of and he is respo- he is responsible for some of what we see. How much was he responsible? Nothing, nothing in terms of the visuals or any mm. any staging or setting, but in terms of the overall structure, um, he he definitely definitely steered steered drafts that had strong similarities to this. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, the 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 actual concept of Last Stand wasn't. Bad, that it, I don't think that was really where it went wrong. I think the the structure and the the ideas that it had at the origin weren't weren't that terrible. I mean, I watched all three of them back to back recently, and Last Stand it stands out like a sore thumb. It looks it's terrible, but I don't know. I like the idea of it. I mean, it, other uh, comics have done the idea of Last Stand really well, but yeah. um, it has a just, couple. Of, it has a couple of interesting moments in it. To to be fair, but I I, I think it's a pretty poor film. Um, but it, I would imagine that Matthew Vaughan's been on Marvel's hit list for quite some time, and, and, and maybe now the negotiations just got to the point where they were like, "Okay, it's going to be a cheap one. We need someone fast and and, and dependable for this," and they, and they cut him some slack. Do you think that he was always, you know, he always really, obviously he, he was attached to the Last Stand, but I'm just thinking that you know, following Kickass, he could pretty much do anything. I would have thought, you know obviously within limits but that he chose to do to do x-men do you think that he thought well you know the the last stand was pretty terrible this is this is my chance to get my hands on on the x-men might be that might be all the money they're offering him might be the fact it might do something huge to his career could be any of these things could be like he said when he was attached to the third x-men film he was a big fan of what singer did who knows? Mm. But it's certainly be a really interesting film. I think um, the fact that Jane Goldman's now, you know, working on the script, I think is a is a very good thing. I really like their analogy that you quoted there, Brandon, because um, I think that works well if when you consider Stardust and when you consider Kickass as well. So, all right, that's X Men First Class. That's the um, writing and directing details there. The very last bit of news before we move into our election themed ripped from the crypt is uh, the release of a trailer. Um, or rather the hype surrounding the release of a trailer. Um, again, it's J.J. Abrams. We were talking about him uh, a little while ago. He has a new film that's going to be out. Now, uh, the first I heard of it, and I think the first a lot of people heard about it, was when Iron Man 2 was, was about to be released in the States, and there was rumours of a of a trailer uh, of sort of relatively unknown origin, um, which was going to be put in front of it. And... You know, if you follow things on Twitter, then you'll know that people were, were were talking about it. There were descriptions of the trailer which were leaked uh, onto the internet in anticipation of it even being seen. And I'm thinking back to Cloverfield um, and you know the very first trailer for that, which surprised a lot of people. And that was even back then when it didn't actually have a name; it was just a date at the end of it. Um, the trailer was then released. It was called Super 8. It was Steven Spielberg. It was J.J. Abrams, and it was. If, if you've seen the trailer, if you haven't, do 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 do, do check out the site because it, it's now up and I think they've they've released it officially in in HD, and it looks pretty good. Uh, it's a very simple trailer of just an incident, and it's pure tease, which is exactly what it's for. Um, but let me just ask you guys: What did you think of it, and what do you think the the, the bigger picture that Abrams is uh, is is trying to get to us? Uh, Craig, what did you think of it? Um, yeah, I mean it's it's pretty good, isn't it? But it, he, I think I read somewhere that it's not actually from the film that they filmed it separately. So therefore, it's a piece of marketing. It's an advert. It's quite a good advert. But um, I mean, I kind of like the little mystery idea that they have with it. That you know, 
you can kind of figure stuff out from the trailer. There was that screen grab that's come up on on a lot of sites recently that um, looks like a face, um, which is going to keep people guessing. But I don't know. It's I like I liked it, but yeah, it feels like an advert. It's not it's not that exciting until I see a proper trailer, really, that's actually from the film. What did you think about? I, it? I can't believe it's not a Cloverfield prequel either. I, I mean, I don't ask, know. If just yeah. I mean, surely they're lying. It's got to be a Cloverfield prequel. It just it just looks like it is. But but maybe that's you know slight fan trying to put us off the scent. I don't know. Brendan, what do you think? I'm doubtful that Abrams would direct a prequel. I think. Um... I think he's probably uh, he'd probably farm that out to one of his TV boys like he did last time. Um, I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, the marketing surrounding the trailer is better than the trailer as a piece of marketing. Phoning up Drew McQueenie and telling him, run this, and giving him some misinformation, and then getting Peter Serrera on the phone and giving him some more and so on, was the real marketing here. There was an awful lot, you know, hype. There was a massive lot of hype about it, and yeah. and people were so. Um, if, even okay, put it this way, right? If if a tweet or a bit of news came out and it said secret film J.J. Abrams trailer released before Iron Man, you can almost fill in the gaps yourself. And surely that must be a testament to, you know, J.J. Uh, Abrams or potentially, you know. The but what's what's really frustrating about about a lot of these marketing things he gets into like that you can enter a website if you follow clues left in the trailer he creates these sort of viral worlds actually don't have anything to do with the films at all slusho and all of of that stuff in no way impacted or even informed any degree of subtext or shading on the world of Cloverfield or none of the stuff they've done were lost has either Um, and I think that's, that's respectable from the point of view that I'm not watching something partial. I'm not watching an incomplete thing when I see the film. But it does just say, look, all of this marketing is a hell of a lot of Sound of Fury signifying absolutely nothing. And it is just a way of just drawing attention and having people say the name of the, the product over and over again. Super 8, Super 8, Super 8, Abrams, Abrams, Abrams. Um, it's interesting that he's directing it uh, because everybody was running around calling it a J.J. Abrams film when they thought he wasn't. He's one of those producers who gets that kind of... Uh, gets that, that kind of honour, right? He gets to possess a film yeah. uh, in a way that Spielberg does. This is interesting. Now people are having dreams about what the film might be because of who the two producers are. Because we've got these sort of concepts of what genres they were. Well, if Spielberg's going to be classic, it's going to feel, you know, this sort of uh, middle-class suburban sort of vibe to it. Almost a sense of, sense of magic and some sort of pure concept, people say, with almost no... <laughs> founding for that they, must, they must be thinking about Close Encounters though because it's you know the whole 1979 well, thing yeah. well, I, well I'm going to assume it's like a cross between Schindler's List and Star Trek because uh, that works as well it, it doesn't mean anything does it when anyone just guesses it's, it's silly but Schindler's List and Felicity that's actually the, the, the one I'd like to see actually <laughs> okay well I mean that's, that trailer has created an almost inordinate amount of buzz and um, it is the kind of thing that people will be dissecting pretty frame by frame and there, there will come a point where a teaser trailer is released and somebody decides to take every single frame and post it up on some site because you know of the, of the different details and in some ways it's it's quite a nice journey to make you know when you, when you have people who are so into um, you know finding out that you know little hints and, and and secrets that are held within these, you know, very, 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 very short, um, short films, if you like. Um, I think it's quite engaging. I think it's quite interesting. I, 
I think I agree with you in the sense that if it doesn't have any real purpose to it, then it is a little bit um, cynical in terms of what they're trying to do. But they've got people talking and, you know, people are going to be trying to put the you know, pieces of the puzzle together and it should make for, a, you know, an interesting, you know, marketing, you know, marketing strategy. If, did, if did, over, did over of you get sucked into the AI sort of viral marketing thing way back when that was coming in? No, no. I, I remember being around and I remember making a decision not to. I think that's the, I think that's the first one that that sort of I sort of understood what they were doing. I, I knew that they were sort of leading people around a series of websites to get people on the internet to keep dropping the name of the film. Mm. Um, but due to the fact that you were interfacing with a computer and the film was AI, mm. it was a, a pretty obvious thing they could do, and they did. They had a lot of Eliza bots. I had a lot of programs that you would encounter that tried to fake uh, the illusion of having a conversation with you. Um, so there was definitely some sort of meeting point between the film and the idea that, it, that, that this marketing was happening online with that film. Um, and to me, I sort of assumed that was the, the birth of it. That was why it happened. But it continues to happen even when that doesn't apply. But you've got things like, um, you know, Tron Legacy has already got, you know, it's got games now. It's got, you know, different different websites where pieces of concept are like almost like rewards for, for unlocking, you know, They've all got them. I mean, Inception had a game that if you mm. if you played it, you'd find out there was a cinema in this town, and if you were at that cinema from Thursday last week, yeah. you you had a chance to see the trailer ahead of other people. I mean, what are the chance? I mean, what are the chances of everybody finding it? There aren't people had to buzz about it, tell people. It's making us tell each other to watch the trailer, mm. create some series of positive impressions on what that trailer is actually like. Um, it's all a big. It's all a big contract. It's not. Always a particularly clever one, either. And so far, there's not been anything clever in the Super 8 stuff. But no, I think you're right. Well, I mean, we're, we're bound to see more. And I think, in some ways, like Cloverfield, the the less you see of it, the better it is. I mean, um, I, I I enjoyed Cloverfield, I have to say, and I and I liked the you know the initial trailer very very much. And I think it, it was really interesting to see that spread and to see the piece of the puzzle come together. But when you have things like Tron Legacy, and there's a there's a um, a game called um, I can't remember what the game is called, but you can play it online. Uh, space Paradox. Okay, Space Paradox. Four in harmony. There, let's do it again, Craig. Three, two, one. <laughs> Space Now you're a bit off that track, but anyway. But I actually went on there because I had like five seconds between between you know doing stuff, and um, I actually found it really scary. I, to say, I, don't know what, I think I was really tired. I think it was around when I stayed up did for the whole I did, and the worst thing was I was going around the you know you, you this little craft, and you have the, you know you have the things from Tron come after you, and when they come down and get you, man, it's freaky. I think I'm getting some sort of flashback from when I saw Tron in the cinema all those years ago. Anyway, let's move on from from Super 8. Uh, and that's our news for for this week. Um, if you have any comments on anything that you hear um, on Craig and Brendan's harmonising, perhaps, you know, just uh, do get in touch with us. Mouth off at heyyouguys.co.uk is the, is the email address. And we've had some really, really, um, really nice comments uh, from people and people who have been leaving reviews on iTunes as well. You can always do that. That would really, really help us out. Um, okay, we're going to move into our election themed ripped from the crypt. Um, I don't know who went first last time, so Craig, I'm going to pick you. Do you want to go first? Tell us all about your film with a political theme that you want people to go and see. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I think if we get time, we could talk about honourable mentions because I do. There were quite a few films that I came to mind, um, but I saw a film this week that really, really interested me and I really liked, um, and it's a film that's called America: Democracy on Trial. 
Uh, it's kind of a television film or, you know, television documentary rather than a proper feature film. But it's something that uh, I saw through Adam Curtis's blog. Um, Adam Curtis, if you're not familiar with him, is a documentary filmmaker. He makes a lot of stuff for TV. Um, he made... Didn't he make The Power uh, of Nightmares? Yeah, that's him, The Power of Nightmares. He made The Trap as well. Yeah. Uh, a series called Pandora's Box as well. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a really interesting filmmaker and someone I'm really really like to follow and he's got a really really good blog on the bbc which you can read um i could definitely recommend checking it out and uh this week obviously he had the same sort of idea as us i think well maybe maybe not but he posted this documentary that's called uh, america democracy democracy on trial and it's by a a guy called oh i've lost his name uh james mossman and James Mossman was a TV presenter in the 60s. Uh, he got in a lot of trouble for some of the things that he said at the time. I think he called, uh, I think it was Harold Wilson. He called out live on air saying uh, that he you know, didn't agree with what Harold Wilson thought about the Vietnam War. Uh, that got him into a lot of trouble. Um, he was part of Panorama, I think, around the time as well. Um, I'm not sure exactly what happened, whether he got fired or whether he just left the BBC but he had a lot of trouble there uh, because of his kind of interview style and um, he sadly committed suicide in 71 um, but in 68 there was this film uh, and it's it's kind of a it's almost like modern reality TV but done so so much better um, kind of verite style he just films this family in America and just follows them in I think it's 68 where they're talking about all the things that are going on at the time in America and how they affect them uh, they talk about you know race politics um, obviously Kennedy um, they talk about the Vietnam War uh, about the economic climate and what's really striking is just the way that this kind of everyday family just they know so much and they uh, they're so engaged with what's going on in the world and uh it's just something you don't see these days, especially not on television. And I think it's it's really sad when you watch it that you realise if this was filmed today, the family that they were filming, you couldn't even... I mean, it doesn't seem to coax them into talking about these subjects. They just seem to come out naturally. I don't know if that's the success of the way he's filmed it, but um, if you filmed a family these days, you, even if you, you tried to coax them into talking about it, I think, sadly, a lot, of, a lot of television isn't like that. You wouldn't get a family talking about politics in the way this family does, and they're just so well informed. And um, yeah, it's it's really fascinating to watch. It's also, really, I can really recommend it. And you can watch the whole thing for free right right now. So oh, yeah, I, I, in that case, what we'll do is we'll we'll either put it, put it up on the site when this podcast goes out to post on on how you guys. Or we'll link to we'll link to the site because it sounds really fascinating. Actually, one of the things that I was thinking about as you as you were describing it, Greg, is how if you got people today, they would be primed for for TV, they would kind of they would either talk in sound bites or they would have to be personalities, and it would be the style of what they said as opposed to the stubs, you know, the substance. It sounds like um, uh, if you you know you go back in time and you don't have this proliferation of reality TV, people aren't used to sort of seeing themselves on TV. Um, that must make for a very different type of, of documentary, almost. Is that the feeling that you got? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The weird the weird thing is though that you'd think. With people being so aware that they're on television and that they're going to be seen and what that's like and the scrutiny that it goes under, you know, if someone does something stupid on Big Brother, it's on all the tabloids, 
the next day everyone knows about what's happened. Mm. You'd think that people would be deliberately articulate and come across better because of that, but but it's quite the opposite. The, these people come across so articulate and they seem so intelligent and they come across so well. And you just, even though there's points where they're just arguing, you know, they, there's a point where they all, there's a husband and wife that just almost shouting at each other because they're getting so angry about, but that, that's amazing. They're getting angry about politics. They're getting angry about something that's important to the world rather than getting angry about how much cider someone's drunk. It's just, <laughs> it's just, so it, it, I was watching it and I was thinking this is so great, but at the same time getting almost a bit sad watching it because you just think, oh, it's, it's, there's not enough of this anymore. You don't get TV like that and you, you don't maybe get as many families like that as well. Or it would have to be, it would have to be under the moniker of something like when political families go bad or something like that and, and shove it up on Channel 5 and, you know, make a point of it really. And I have to say that with, uh, you know, the election as it, as it has now dragged on for the past, you know, five days, it was mildly, um, you know, interesting for the for the you know for the general public. But there are some people who who care about it, you know, passionately, and um, you know who did stupidly stay up all night um, you <laughs> know, to watch the election, um, and then uh, and then you know and get like, one hour sleep for that night. And of course, nothing ever happened. And but you know there there are people, and um, you know I think you know we are among those who just find the whole thing. Uh, you know, fascinating, intriguing, and it can be really, really dramatic. So um, it's good but, to see. Does, but the, the thing is, television doesn't give you that anymore. I mean, I, I don't actually have an aerial anymore, so I can't watch much telly. But I mean, they. It, I watched. <laughs> I saw on YouTube that someone had posted the um, the intro to this week, the program on BBC, where they've okay. done a Wizard of the Oz themed mm. intro. And that just that says it all about modern modern television. I mean, it's just it's just depressing to watch. I mean, what was that the week the year before last when they did the swingometer and they had uh, I can't remember his name. Is it Jeremy Vine Jeremy with the Vine, yeah. cow On outfit? The I, is that just you know what's come of television? It's just it's so pathetic, really. And I I just think it's really sad. And I yeah I I love getting in, interested in politics and things, but a lot of the time it takes a well written long article to really talk about something in an interesting way because I don't think you can really get it from television as much anymore. I mean, I obviously check stuff out on the iPlayer, but even then it's it's searching through a load of rubbish to try and find something worth. Brendan, what's your take on all of this? Well, I saw, I saw the film on, on Curtis' blog, actually, and I'd never seen it before, so I, so I watched it. But I was familiar with, with Mossman because he's one of these, um, you know, he's, he's one of these people who, who's got an interest in when the BBC was a bit more, a bit a bit less frightened to not be a competitor to the commercial channel, shall we say. He's one of those figures from that time that's a, a little bit famous. And, um, yeah, I, 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 did, I, I thought by any number of standards it wasn't a particularly good piece of work, but it, as a time capsule, I agree, it's absolutely fascinating. Um... It, it, it is quite well filmed, though. Did you not think, Brendan? I mean, well, I, mean some moments... I mean, it's okay. I mean, it's okay. It's, I just—it's it's of its time, definitely. I mean, there, there's some moments where it's kind of that—it was a really nice shot. But I was thinking, oh, that's really late sixties kind of filming. But you know, I think like, it's nice, nice shot. Whatever. I mean, it's it just like was that in terms of what did that do for me in terms of 
advancing it for me or, or conveying some idea to me. Do you know what I mean? So it was, it was the content was verbal and the aesthetic was pictorial and, and never the facial meat in a sense. Is what, what I mm, it had. It has a really nice moment at the end though, where they, there's kind of almost a sea of voices that overwhelms it, and then the film kind of finishes, which sure. I, I really liked sure. as well. I think that does as, that. I mean, that sort of technique is something you don't as, see. As I was much. saying, the content was was vocal. I mean, it could mm, have been, yeah. it could very much have, have been almost as successful on the radio. Um, mm. I don't know. I think I, I don't think it's I don't think it's bad. I think it uh, um, I think it's very I, I think it's okay. I think it's pretty good, but I think it's more interesting because we're looking at it from a different point in time than it would have been from the perspective of when it was made. Can I ask a question? You've got um, you've got Curtis himself, who's obviously picked this out uh, sort of, you know, to, to show to people. What were the reasons that he gave that the people should should check this out? Um, I think Craig was sort of hinting at how timely it was, in a sense, really. Right. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm just you know, curious in, because in terms you know, of you know, in terms of we would hope that we would hope that we were a period of debate and of and of consideration and of people thinking about issues of democracy, mm. um, whether we were or not. Um, Mossman, incidentally, there was a play about him uh, a couple of years ago that Richard Richard Eyre directed, and um, as I understand it, there's a potential that it's going to be a film. So, okay, that sounds interesting. Well, you know, we'll... to film about him, um, and also famously, he, uh, whether it was him or a friend, uh, is the basis for the story of Equus. Okay, that's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, Which... I remember hearing that a while ago as well. Was it that he? Supposedly he told the story to the writer or something like that, that well, it was a yeah, story. Yeah, I, think, I, I don't know if it's... I think it was like one of these, here's something that happened to my friend. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I think there's been some suspicion that, that maybe it had, you know, uh, autobiographical material, the story that he told. But we, we don't know. We don't know. There's any number of reasons he could have killed himself and it, it didn't necessarily have anything, anything to do with blinding horses. I mean, he was a member... That was a joke, by the way. Nobody laughed. He was a member of MI6. Uh, MI6 too. And uh, God only knows what that... Uh, what what knowledge of the world that gave him. Sure, OK. Well, I mean... Well, I'm, I mean, he probably had quite a rough time as well. I mean, he was a, he was a gay man as well, wasn't he, in the 60s? So, I mean, it, it it's pretty... Probably, I'm yeah. sure. I'm yeah. sure it was a, a very, very tough time. Considerably less tough time than the fifties. I'm sure. But, mm. uh, uh, but yeah, I'm sure. He, I'm sure. Uh, listen, I, I. Do you know what? I don't mean to to be glib about it. He was obviously a, a very sincere and talented um, journalist, and um, uh, I, I don't want to uh, be glib about his, his passing at all. Um, you were talking about honourable mentions there, Craig. Before we get off of my phone's ringing, can you yeah. please excuse me? I will Craig, do. Do you want to answer that and then we'll... Let me just make oh, a note of the time. Make a note of the time. 101, that's excellent. <laughs> can I call him back? Podcast. Just tell him it's hey you guys and understand, you know. <laughs> hey, go, what? Good news? What? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what was I saying? Oh, okay, yeah, I had a segue in mind. Yeah, go say. for it. Yeah, Craig, before we, we, we finish with you there, we've, we've, we've wrapped up with uh, America on trial. Um, you were going to have some honourable mentions, or should I say right honourable mentions, that you wanted to, to, to bring? <laughs> Very good, Brandon. 
Um, yeah, I mean, there, there were just a few films that were going around in my head. I mean, two that definitely came to mind that I just thought weren't obscure enough to really mention because I thought people had probably already seen them. But if you haven't, uh, In the Loop was one that I thought of and also Brazil. Um, that's not Wow, well, now then. There's an interesting one. <laughs> it is Brazil. Brazil always, every week that should just be unsaid recommendation. Yeah, well, film spotting um, in their podcast, they have a pantheon, don't they? I think Brazil is, you know, definitely going to be an hour one. Uh, I like where you're coming from from that. Um, Brendan, do you want to take uh, take the next three from the crit recommendation? First of all, then a little side recommendation because you just mentioned Adam Curtis, Power of Nightmares, mm-hmm. best fiction film about those same things. I think is Shyamalan's The Village. It's almost like somebody took Adam Curtis, Power of Nightmares, and said, "Let's make an episode of The Twilight Zone out of it." <laughs> Um, but again, not an obscure film by any stretch of the imagination, but one I am quite passionate about. My rip from the crypt recommendation for the week is effectively uh, a remake. It's an, in a sense, it's an English-French co-production remaking a uh, two-year previous French co-production. The French film came out in 1970. The English-French film came out in 1972. Now, um... If I tell you that Emma Thompson's daddy was involved, does that give you any clues? Yeah, okay. Uh, Emma Thompson's daddy, the only thing I know about him uh, is uh, Magic Roundabout. Precisely. That's you're precisely gonna, what it is. It's the Magic Roundabout film. Dougal and the Blue, Blue Cat. Cat. Brandon, I have to say, you've um, you picked my rip from the crypt. That's the, probably the only one that I was convinced that no one else would ever pick. I'm so pleased you picked it for today. Go on, tell us why it has anything to do with politics. Well, uh, early on in the film, it becomes incredibly clear that it's about politics because Dougal wakes up from a nightmare screaming, man overboard, vote Tory, uh, or vote Conservative, I think. And, he goes, and then he stops and he's like, oh, no, 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 what am I saying? What am I saying? Um, the entire film is about an evil blue force. Uh, and pr- prophetically, I mean, this is ahead of Thatcher. It's got a sort of a female avatar. It does. Um, Evil Blue Force, played by Fenella Fielding, who would be my dream casting for Factor, I've got to say, um, is just turning the world evil. And um, it's up to uh, our friends from from the garden there to uh, to fight back. I'm so pleased that you mentioned this. I mean, I have to say that when we started doing Rick from the Crypt, you know, all those weeks ago, I've been compiling a list of obscure films, and this was top of my list. It was one of the films that um, my wife had seen ages ago and tried to tell me that it really existed and I said there's no way a film like that could ever exist and then we had to buy a VHS copy um, of it to see it and I, I'm not sure even if it's available on DVD but it isn't, uh, no very in the world okay well in that case we'll I'm sure that, you know, we'll be able to find something on the on, on the internet like a trailer or something but it is such a screwed up bizarre film, when I first saw it I mean all I knew about it was, it was Magic Roundabout and obviously you know grew up with the Magic Roundabout and didn't even know about film and, and and don't don't take magic around about film to mean the the recent one this the cg one um of sort of uh, i can't remember when that came out the last you know for the five ten years you know this is proper screwed up bizarre you know fiction and i have to say i had such such a good time with it i'd never thought of the political subtext in it at all so maybe you've opened my eyes but um craig have you ever heard about this one? Oh yeah 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 I'd, i remember watching it as a as a teenager, but um, yeah, same battered old VHS copy, I think. But I I haven't seen it in good ten years, so 
Um, my memory of it's not great, but um, yeah, I remember absolutely loving it, and yeah, totally messed up. And I do remember thinking at the time that there was some some moments in it that were there was definitely subtext to them. I don't know if I picked up that precise uh, political one at the time, but I remember there being lots of little bits in it that brought to mind different things. Uh, Brendan, it doesn't sound like it, it was in any way um, you know hidden. It seemed like it was. Oh it was no, 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 Mr. Thompson was on a crusade. <laughs> And um, I think it's I think it's uh, wonderful, and it doesn't matter that it's on the surface because it's not pretending to be hidden. There are depths to the film. It's just not in terms of like you have to work out what its politics are, right? Why 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 make a film that you have to try and decode its its politics? Um, it, it's quite clear about it. Um, there is an evil blue force. It's trying to take over the world. Dougal goes around, shall we say, canvassing, trying to turn the other members of the garden against this thing. When that doesn't work, he has to stand up to it and destroy it. Uh, and that's why I'm probably going to walk into number 10 Downing Street wearing a vest made out of dynamite on Saturday. We have to point out, of course, that Brendan is joking. And anyone listening to this podcast, he's going to pay us a visit. Um, that was that was a considerable joke. Can we, but, can we put the hashtag Twitter joke fund on here yeah. or whatever? Twitter joke yeah, fund. I was going to say, as, as long as you don't make that joke on Twitter, you'll be okay. Well, considering that, you know, it is, uh, Cameron is now, you know, fluffing the pillows of number 10, I think um, that's a timely recommendation. So thank you for that, Brendan. Thank you for stealing my, my one obscure film on my list. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will endeavour to try and find a couple of clips from it because it is brilliant. And, it, you know, if, if, you, if you know about the Magic Roundabout, then you will have some vague idea of what it is. But you have, trust me, you have no idea what you're letting yourself in for. Um, I, I've just looked, actually, and you can watch the uh, whole thing on YouTube. Oh, Some, someone's put it all up in individual parts, okay. which I'm not sure how legitimate that is, but you can do that if you well, want. Well, if, if you can't get it on DVD, Pete, uh, what I do is I will link to a trailer and then hint, you know, that you can maybe find it on YouTube. I think that would be good. Um, all right, thanks for that, Brendan. Um, I was uh, torn uh, in my rip for the Crypt choices um, for this election, especially because I'm, you know, I'm a big, big fan of. Um, of you know, political drama, I think it makes for it, it can make when it's well written. It can make for some just you know some of the best television and and, and some of the best films. But I'm going to mention two um, uh, politically charged uh, pieces that um, that are not necessarily obscure, but I think really really are um, at the top of their game. Um, the first one I'm going to mention is House of Cards, which is the um, uh, BBC TV series, uh, starred Ian Richardson. Again, there's a, there's a link to Brazil there, um, as Francis Urquhart, who is this um, uh, Conservative Party member who begins as, as the chief whip, and he is incredibly Machiavellian in terms of what he does, and he ends up be, becoming um, you know, the Prime Minister. Now, that's a very, very, very simplified version of what happens. It is... Uh, the writing in the um, in the original book is just fantastic, and the actual uh, adaptation um, of this of, of this to the to, you know to the to the TV screen is is sublime. In my opinion, it hasn't been bettered. Things like the West Wing did did American politics very well, but this is there's something hideously British about um, you know, the moral erosion of what uh, Francis Urquhart does to the country and to the, and you know using the Conservative Party as as his as his vessel, if you like. Um, there were two other miniseries which um, which came after this. Um, one was uh, to play the king, and then it was the final cut, and they're all available uh, on DVD. And it's one of those things that once you get into it, you pretty much end up watching the whole thing all the way through all three series because they're about four hours each, and um, 
Ian Richardson, it was, I think, the most iconic performance that that he gave. And if you if you see him, then you may you know you may well think of of, of House of Cards. But before I move on to my second choice, guys, did, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this. What do you think of House of Cards? Craig. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really good. I mean, it's pretty solid solid drama. I mean, I think I remember it more for his iconic performance, like you say, than I do actually the the story and everything else. But um. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, it was based on a book that mm. I think was written by a Tory, perhaps. Um, there's every chance. I think I remember that he was in, involved in some way, whether or not he was a correspondent. I'm, I'm sure that that I'll, um, you know, uh, his name it was, was an aide to Thatcher. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Okay. So, I I did think when you started talking, I was wondering. I don't know. Maybe I might ruin one of your other, one of your second choice. But two others that I was thinking of mentioning was uh, Yes Minister, which became. Yes, Prime Minister, and also uh, the thick of it, which obviously turned into in the loop. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to mention the thick of it, but again, these are all on my right honourable mentions, um, which you know we can come on to in a minute. And in, in particular, those two make make a really good, um, you know, bridge uh, from you know the seventies to you know to to right now in the way that we satirise you know politicians, and in the way that even though times are different. Um, the, it's it's the language, isn't it? It's the language and the and and the red tape and the insane twisted logic um, of of politics and the way that it can just be shot through brilliantly by somebody who has you know a got a real understanding of it and also you know really really tremendous script writing. So, with, well, with yeah, I mean, I, I feel like yes, minister taught me so much about politics when I was a kid. I mean, the the idea that who's in power doesn't make that much difference because the civil service is running everything. Uh, was just fascinating to me as a kid and just the Sir Humphrey character in Yes Minister is just just incredible creation just the way he does run rings around uh, Jim Jim Hackett I think it is That's the one, yeah. Um, yeah I just think I, when I was a kid just those kind of machinations and the uh, I think I read Machiavelli's The Prince at a similar sort of time and just seeing that way that people just manipulate situations it's a total eye opener and it really makes you think differently about politics when you when you appreciate the way things, whether they work like that or not, mm. but that they might work like that. I think I remember hearing that, you know, Thatcher used to watch Yes Minister, or Yes Prime Minister as it became, and I think sometimes it was a bit too close to call, but um, but House yes, of Cards... She actually did it, didn't she? Didn't she do, a, like, a radio play? Like, seriously? where she was acting in it, I think. Unless I've had some sort of twisted dream, which that, is quite possible. If, but, yeah, if, yeah, if you haven't, yeah, sort of radio just check her out on IMDb. She's bound to be there. You know, she's done that. <laughs> um, okay, uh, my second recommendation is a film that that was made for HBO in two thousand and eight, and it was at the time um, a really good example of how you can take an incredibly convoluted and complex period of time and make it dramatic and make it. it into a two-hour TV play, basically, um, it was. It's got a very a, a, kind of a strange, um, a strange mixture of people. It's called Recount, uh, and it's based on the um, 2000 U.S. presidential elections and the the whole nonsense that sort of followed it. Um, in terms of uh, you know the recounts, literally as as its title, but also you know the various different people um, who advised Gore and um, you know Jeb Bush and, and George Bush, and it was. Um, it was made for, like I said, HBO, and it was written by a guy called Danny Strong, who 
uh, I knew because he was in Buffy, um, playing one of the playing like a really geeky character, and it was directed by uh, Jay Roach, who's I guess better known for Austin Powers and the and the Fockers um, franchises. And it was a bit of an odd move for him, but he and Danny Strong made this incredibly um, uh, compelling drama out of what was a complete mess. You have all of these. Um, you know, different um, motivations and you have different expectations all going into people who, um, when the 2000 presidential election was was such a farce in terms of things like, I think the actual tagline of it, according to IMDb, is the future of the nation was hanging by a chad. You had all of this, you know, ridiculous, um, nonsensical political nonsense that, that, that was sort of happening and the, the country was waiting a bit like we've been for the last four days working out what's going to happen. But... Um, uh, I don't know if, if either of you guys have seen it, but um, yeah, what did you think of it, Brendan? Well, I mean, you know, who'd have thought Jonathan was such a good writer? I know, he was... Um, um, yeah, yeah, good job, him. I was very sad. I mean, Sidney Pollock, right, was, yeah, yeah. was, was a fashion that he, he got ill and, 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 and passed, and, and that kind of overshadowed it for, for, for me, in a sense, because Pollock, I mean, I, you know, I'm a fan of his, and of really... Watching him act as well, and the fact that he was going to be in it too, and all this this, this sort of sort of stuff was sort of was lingering there. But um, I don't think any film could be quite as angry about what happened as I am. Mm. Uh, I think it'd be unrealistic for it to, to expect it to be as absolutely passionate about what happened as, as as I feel. But I do think it it, it does a, an incredibly good job of maintaining human drama at the same time is conveying an awful lot of factual information yeah. in the way that something like the West Wing uh, you know was, was devised to do or um, traffic was so excellent at but um, you know we haven't had anything from uh, from Jonathan since and I've been wondering I keep calling him Jonathan poor Danny Strong <laughs> um, I wonder I wonder what he's writing uh, right now I want, I want more more Jonathan more it was. I mean, and the thing is, the he's he's. I think he wrote the script. I think he um, spent um, years and years trying to get interviews with all the people who were involved. Because when he was writing it, it was seven years on, and of course Bush had then been re-elected, and the whole furore about about Bush getting in and Gore losing the election or maybe winning it, um, you know, had sort of passed almost into parody. Do you know what I mean? And um, he was able to to sort of wrench it out of that and gather together with Jay Rhodes and, and Sidney Pollock, who I believe was involved in the develop. You know heavily involved in the development of it he brought together a really really good cast I mean you've got Kevin Spacey and uh, and John Hurt and you know Tom Wilkinson and I'm just you know reading down a few names here but they were all um, incredibly good at, at being able to, to convey the confusion and the passion that they had for um, for politics and also for the country because um, everyone was caught up in it within those five weeks or however long it was and um and in, in, in some ways, like the West Wing, you really got the impression that, that there was passion behind it. And for me, I was a bit worried going into it that it was going to be a bit too um, anti-Bush. It was going to be a bit too heavy-handed. But in, in, in the event, it was much more about, here you've got this, this political system. It's, it's flawed. You've got these, these people who are running against each other. And it's, it's all down to almost like blind luck and, and you know the odd bit of corruption here and there. And how terrible it is, but it managed to convey the fact that the whole country had had moved into this you know dark time of of, of the Bush uh, Bush Junior era um, because of uh, you know because of these people 
you know, trying desperately hard to to stop it, and it was all ended up being, you know, it, it gets very very political if you like after that, and it's just fascinating. It, it, it was a really really good, um, you know, really really good TV movie. I'm sure it's out on DVD. Craig, have you seen this one at all? I haven't. No, um, no, I remember it around the time, but um, yeah, I'm, I'll definitely go and check it out. I think. I, I, is it? Do you know if it's available on DVD anywhere? Yeah, I, think it must be. I think it was. It is. Yeah, it is. Uh, let's talk a bit of a, a very briefly because we, we are running quite long now about our honourable mentions. Um, I think it, we, we can't talk too much without mentioning Bob Roberts. I think um, that is hilarious. And I'm a huge, huge fan of that. Uh, the West Wing, we, when we discovered the West Wing, I think it was just finishing in America and we went and we started from season one and I think got through all seven seasons in about three weeks, something like that. You know, it was like crack. Um, and it is, it, it, it remains, you know, high point of, of, of television drama. Um, the candidate as well. I, I enjoyed recently election. Of course, I think we mentioned that before we, we started recording. Um, uh, well, I was actually talking about a different election. Oh, were think, you? Okay. Yeah. Were you talking about the Matthew Broderick one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was, I actually, what came to mind when I was trying to think of a, a rip from the crypt was uh, Johnny Toe's election, which is a Hong Kong film. Okay, it isn't actually really about politics, but it is about the election of. It's about the election of a triad leader. Okay, and it goes through all the all the details of how he becomes, uh, gets the vote, and actually it is vaguely appropriate now. I think about it to what's going on now, especially the way that yeah, um, vaguely <laughs> the way he kind of. The person who gets the most votes perhaps at first doesn't win, but then it's it's kind of tricky. It's yeah, it, yeah, it's vaguely appropriate now. But okay, um, that's cool. yeah, definitely check. Out. That's another recommendation, definitely. <laughs> Brendan, what about your right honourable mentions? Uh, His Girl Friday would have been a good one about mm. uh, journalists trying to get crooked uh, politicos. Um, Hostel and Hostel Two, probably the two most accurate films about the current political state of, of America. I wish things had changed, but it doesn't look like they they have so much. Um, uh, let's have a think. There was some, oh, Mr. Freedom, William Klein's Mr. Freedom. Now, have I have you seen this? No, go on, expand. It's uh, it's a film made by a fashion photographer turned filmmaker. Uh, I think his previous feature was uh, Who Are You, Polly Magoo. Um, and this one is about an American fascist superhero called Mr. Freedom who goes around beating up anyone and indeed sometimes uh, raping them uh, if they're considered that they might be commies or might be in league with the commies. And when he hears that France is going to fall to the Reds, he gets over there and causes absolute havoc. Uh, and there's a red China man who's like a big uh, paper dragon. It's like his nemesis. Um, it's it's quite striking. I mean, it's a it's a film by a fashion photographer at the end of the sixties. I think you could probably sort of get some images of what it's like in your head. If you've ever seen the Sex Laws video for the Beck Music uh, Beck track, the Beck Music video, Sex Laws, that's clearly a tribute to a sequence in in Mr. Freedom. Uh, if you get Mr. Freedom on DVD, you also get Where Are You? Poly- who, sorry, Who Are You? Polly Magoo and the Model Couple. Uh, in the box too and the model couple is also a very political film but Mr Freedom is a superhero film for people who are disgusted and appalled by the the simple basic fascistic notion of superheroes 
sounds wicked. I love it. That can I, can I just recommend one other thing, although it's not really strictly a rip from the crypt? You go for the, it. Uh, the V for Vendetta graphic novel that I mm. think everyone should read because that's really good. And I think at the moment I was slightly disappointed that in this, this period of uncertainty that we had in politics, it was surely the perfect time for a coup. And uh, I think we missed out. And I think V for Vendetta might maybe that'll engage people. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't bother going and checking out the film. Go and read Tomorrow the, morning, Craig, you and me. I'll meet you down at Downing Street. Um, okay, that brings us to the end of our Rip from the Crypt election special. Um, and with David Cameron in number ten, I can't quite believe I'm saying those words. Um, that's uh, that's the end of uh, that's the end of our show. Our um, our political themed uh, mouth off podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, do let us know. Do. Uh, send us an email mouthoff at heyyouguys.co.uk you can uh, follow us on twitter we're at heyyouguysblog we're on facebook and of course do check out the um, uh, the website www.heyyouguys.co.uk uh, thanks once again uh, for your uh, for your ripping the crypts and for your discussion tonight chaps uh, we'll see you all next week <laughs>